You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lalita G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Any scene depicted in this episode is a fictionalized dramatization based on true accounts and public records. We aim to give voice to the story and tragedy of Erica Hill's life. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. The Black community in Madison was absolutely shook when the news came out that Marie Hill was arrested for the murder of her daughter, Erica Hill. Facebook absolutely exploded with comments and cries from women who were mothers of children who knew and went to school and played with the Hill children, as well as girls who were now women who went to school, who knew Erica, who knew the other Hill children. And I think in the end, the Black community in Madison had to ask itself, how did this happen on our watch? Oh my God, I just saw Marie last Sunday at church. I can't believe this. I'm speechless. I'm really tripping off this. How could she do that to her kids? How could she continue to show her face at school, church, and everywhere? Your kids ain't good with nobody but you. I'm in tears. This is so devastating. I feel bad for her kids. I walked the same halls with them in high school and never knew what they were going through. Shit is sad as fuck. What's most disheartening about this tragic event is the silence. I've questioned myself as to how a child could just disappear. Parents need to be in at least a situation ship with the parents of the kids their kids hang with. What appears to be is not always the reality. My heart has been heavy, and I have been in a state of shock. I knew Marie. I just feel so down, depressed. Like, who can you trust? Why did this beautiful baby die along with hundreds of injuries on her body? It's definitely a time of mourning and shock. I don't and can't even begin to understand how people can do those God-awful things to their children. I can only pray and hold my children close. Thank you for joining us for part three of the question, could the Black community have saved Erica? 
you know, um, the first two parts, we talked to Anthony McAllister, and he told us about his early on experience with the Hill family when he was a daycare provider, just a teenager himself. And we talked about how, you know, the need to report. He was young. He didn't know how to respond to the signs of abuse that he saw and was ill-prepared to really do that in that setting. We talked to Katina, his sister, and just talked about how she knew Marie from an adult education program, but had had some greetings, meetings with her other kids coming to the class. Kiara was in the class as well, and she knew them and saw things that seemed strange. And so in part three, I want to take a deep dive into some conversations that I had with people who were really close to Marie, really good friends of hers over the years who had interaction with her, who had interaction with the girls and look at, you know, once again, could the black community have saved Erica Hill? And I'm joined today with Alexandra. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. And Cassie, hey Cassie. Hello. So I really wanted to bring you two into the conversation because I'm going to share with you all bits and pieces of conversation I had with several people who wanted to be a part of the story, but wanted to do it a little clandestine. You know, they felt they wanted to speak on Erica's behalf of what they knew but didn't feel like they were trying to find a balance between knowing and loving Erica and knowing and loving Marie. And so I had a number of off mic conversations that I'm going to be sharing with, sharing some of the things that they said and just getting some feedback from you all as we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're going to be looking at a number of things and one of the things I wanted to start off with is just the deadly poison of secrets. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I have said time and time again, I'll say it again, is that I really appreciate Kiara. And from one of the things she was recorded saying was she wanted to stop generational curses. And that is one of the things that led her to releasing the secret about Erica's death. And not just her death, but really their experience as children, experiencing, um, according to her, um, domestic violence. And, you know, often when we talk about domestic violence, we're talking about usually between two romantic people, you know, husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we also need to use the terminology of domestic violence when we're talking about physical abuse, emotional abuse of children, because it also is happening in the home. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think using that type of language helps to bring a sobering reality that in the place where children should feel the most safe, abuse happens. And so one of the reasons I wanted to do this story as a whole was really looking at how deadly secrets are. You know, there's what's happened to you. And how that impacts you and the trauma of that and the scars of that and the pain of that. But then it's the residue that's left behind when you're still holding secrets. Mm -hmm. And that secrets by themselves can be very, very deadly and very, very damaging. 
And so one of the things that I want to encourage you all as the listeners to consider, you know, which secrets are you still holding from childhood, from painful experiences that one might save somebody else? Like if you were abused and you see someone else that's in relationship with someone that's getting with somebody who has kids and you know that person sexually abused you, the likelihood is that they will sexually abuse another child that they have an access to. And so looking at the deadly power of secrets and, you know, I don't talk about this much, but I can remember a time where this man came to church who had abused me as a child. And I was so entrenched in the darkness of my secrets that I didn't find the strength to warn this woman he was dating. And that's a regret that I have to live with, you know. And so I know firsthand how deadly secrets can be just for yourself, but also for other people. And so as you're listening to this story and we're asking the question, could the black community have saved Erica? Part of it is, can we speak up? Can we release secrets? Can we tell what we know? Not because we just want to just be talking, but if you want to just talk because it's going to make you feel better, do that. But also because we need to protect the next generation. We need to protect the next black girl that's been undefended by releasing our secrets. You know, and I I say that and I know it's a very difficult thing to do because I meant to go to the grave with my secrets. I say it, I know it's hard. And so if you decide to release secrets, you know, get you an ally to help you, to support you, to be with you, somebody in your family, someone outside of your family, you know, um, to really support you as you or when you decide to release your secrets. You all have any thoughts on just the deadliness of secrets, what you've seen them do in families and relationships? Yeah, Um Secrets, they're hard to keep for one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's harder to, sometimes it feels like um, when I opened up about what happened uh, to me with my family, um, I feel like some of that could have been just left alone, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, but the the freedom I feel after having shared it is um, rewarding enough. Um, there are moments where I'm just like, man, I shouldn't even told nobody, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but so much has come from it. Um, I feel like, um, I mean, you and I, it's an unfortunate way to relate Mm -hmm. (laughs) to someone, but it's a way that you can, um, help other heal their pain, get through their journey. Mm -hmm. Um, when in the, the shame that's attached to it, um, I wasn't, that's something to note. Like when you open up about a secret, it's the shame that's attached to that secret is mm-hmm. may hit you in the face <laughs> right. harder than you, you think it's going to. Um, so, uh, like being prepared for that and just, it's, it's kind of like when you, um, for me, it's like a volcano. It's like erupting. The mm-hmm. shame is erupting, erupting, and it's kind of disrupting your life. And then when you open up, um, all this kind of like stuff, like it's like your mind just goes crazy and things come up that you haven't thought of in a long time. Um, but then things kind of cool down, cool Mm -hmm. over and smooth itself over. And then there's a new foundation to build upon. You know what I mean? So, um, that I wasn't, 
prepared for the disruption, the first, the initial disruption after coming forth with a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard because you're being judged by other people. You're like, you know, m- being misunderstood. And that's one of the hardest things mm-hmm. for me is being misunderstood um, and not being seen in the way that, um, and I, I think that comes with the perfectionism part of me too, but that's neither here nor there. But I think that like, um, when you come forth with a, a secret, a family secret, it's going to be really one side or another, you right. know? Um, and there may not be too many on your side <laughs> of right. it, you know? Um, Unfortunately. Yeah. Because most people just want to leave it alone. And this is particularly why I caution folks when you feel ready to release your secret that you start off with an ally. Yeah. And usually you're going to need an ally outside of your family because families act really funny when you start talking about shit. So you're going to need an outside ally. If you have a family ally, that's great, but have an outside ally too, because sometimes they start off as an ally, but then when they start hitting the fan, they jump on the other side of the fence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alexander? Um, Well, I think something that stood out that you were talking about, Cassie, is just the idea that we can get so paralyzed in the fear of judgment that we're leaning onto this illusion of control within that secret and that we have no space to have any type of expectation of freedom, Mm -hmm. of someone maybe getting us and helping us get us to the place that we need to go. Mm -hmm. Just being bound by that secret and bound by this idea that we even have control over it in the first place which you we never do right and the flip side of keeping the secret is the need to be fake Mm -hmm. and be false all the time Mm -hmm. you know acting like uncle johnny is nice Mm -hmm. you know and reflect on the memories and pass me a turkey leg you know and all that and there's a cost to not owning your own truth there's a part of you that dies when you don't own your own story, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, shame is an issue, but the more I tell my story and, and, and over the years have told it, the less shame I feel and the realignment of shame with the right person. I'm, I'm clearer now about who is shameful. Right. You know, so I just say that at the get go of talking about could the black community have saved Erica because the secrets is one of the things that pulls us down as a black community, as black families, as black people. And it's not that we are the masters of secrets, you know, it's not that, but I know we are really good at it because, you know, we had to learn how to secrecy saved our lives. You know, you could, who are you going to run to tell when master raped you? And what were they supposed to do about it? You know, so secrecy saved our lives many times. And we just, through the generations, knew to hold on to secrets, um, not even knowing why or where it started, um, but being left with the residue of that. And so I'm just going to just really encourage you all. And maybe the first person you tell is yourself. <laughs> because well, I can remember being in a psychology class and they were talking about incest and I was reading this story for an assignment mm-hmm. and I was about this girl who had been incest by her dad and I was like that's so sad that's so sad that's so wait <laughs> and it's not like I forgot 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 
But I have pushed it so far back that I forgot it was my own story in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so um, forgetting didn't make me any heal because I was still messed up. But, you know, um, I really wanted to say fucked up. So let me go ahead and say that. I was still fucked up, you know. <laughs> um, but You deserve um, that. Yeah, because it was. It was that. But it it acknowledging it to myself first wait this is my story it was really began of the beginning of a journey that took a long time for many reasons you know but acknowledging to myself and then and then finding where to go from there that's one of the things um the second part of this conversation is really looking at you know who knew what and when and where and why didn't they see it why didn't they say they saw it and if they said they saw it why didn't the folks who needed to do something do something about it and so um just really kind of looking at that you know and and one of the things that really stood out to me that I've mentioned a couple times is when I was reading through court papers and I was seeing folks who were character witnesses for Marie just glowing just glowing just glowing reviews, reviews, and that's what you're supposed to do when you're a character witness for your friend. But I was just so taken aback because most people didn't say anything about Erica, and I get that. But the ones who did was like, well, there's got to be more to the story. I'm not really sure what happened with Erica, but, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and so it just threw me back. And so I did reach out to some friends of Marie um, some friends of mine that were friends of Marie, some friends of a friend of mine who were friends of Marie, just to help me tell the story. And so one of the first people that I spoke with, she knew Marie when she just had Tierra. And she told me of a story when Tierra came to her house, she was babysitting for her. And Tierra was like three years old and she had a black eye. And she asked her, who did this to you? And she said that Tierra said, my mommy. So where do we go in society? Where do we go in our own souls when you see a three-year-old with a black eye? Right. You know, and, and maybe there were other alternative explanations she fell. You know. The black eye, though? Yeah, you know. Um, but at three... Like, at three, you don't know the lie yet, mm-hmm. you know. At two and three, you just know it is what it is. Right. And even though understand the power of those words. Yeah. And so she said that um, she actually confronted Marie about it. And, you know, Marie had given some um, excuses. She fell. She hurt herself, something like that, that somehow this three-year-old had done harm to herself. Now, in talking with this this mom, she also talked about, I mean, with this friend, she also talked about having known Marie over the years, having known the girls over the years. So she knew Marie before some of the, the younger kids were born, and she also knew Marie before Erica came to live with the family. But she kept in touch over the years. And so she knew Erica as well. And when I first reached out to her, and asked her about the story, she immediately expressed regret 
and felt responsible in some way about what happened to Erica. Like she didn't do enough to save her. And this was early on in my research and it came out through many other people, similar stories of regret. So, you know, do we as a black community tend to, I don't know if look the other way is the right question, but do we tend to stay out of how parents discipline their children? Yes. <laughs> I say yes, for sure. I even think about it in my own situation with um, my family, my my siblings, and how they parent their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think for me, it's like I know how sensitive my siblings are, mm-hmm. and so you know, there's a, and I I, I think maybe this. Um, it's present in a lot of people if they they already know what they need to do better, mm-hmm. and so when you mention something, they take they they get really defensive about it mm-hmm. because it's like a projection of like yeah I know that but this you know what I mean right and so like so we tend not to say it because of how we feel they're gonna respond mm-hmm. to what we're saying yeah and I think the other part is I grew up where my parents and my family just like mind your business, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And that's really what it is. Like snitches get stitches mm-hmm. and like all that, you know, like that's, that's just how I was raised, you know? Um, and I think that's a big part of that, why that culture of thought keeps continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more people are speaking up about some stuff now. Um, had if Erica was present now, like would things be different? I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, because there are things changing with the younger generation of people mm-hmm. um, being more vocal about everything. Well, <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of outlets mm-hmm. for vocalness. And Alexander, mm-hmm. I know you work with a lot of young people, and they're using social media a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. They you seem know? like they have been waiting for this platform Mm -hmm. to be able to really just share the depths of what they're experiencing. Um, Yeah. Which is interesting. Do you think that when we are afraid to mention to someone how they're parenting their child, is it that we are afraid we're going to insult the parent or we are afraid of what it may cost us in the relationship with that parent? Are we protecting them or are we protecting ourselves? Both. I think mostly ourselves. Why do you say that? We're pretty selfish by nature. Mm -hmm. I think most things are about protecting ourselves. I think it is both. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's leaning more on the side of self. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to be mad at me. Because then Mm -hmm. more often I would think that we would see us speaking up more than. Mm -hmm. But we don't. So I think it's more about self-preservation. Yeah. Whether it's for that directly or... I just don't want the stress of having to deal exactly. with somebody else's yeah, situation. I definitely think that plays into it too. Mm-hmm. You don't know what that means once you step into something like that. Right. Well, and I think like for me, it's like comprehension versus like one of the main, one of the parts of communication I think that people miss is that 
maybe you can communicate well, but if, if the other person's not comprehending what you're saying, mm-hmm. then it's not going to go anywhere anyway. Right. You know what I mean? And so if someone's already feeling some type of way about themselves and you're yeah. like aware of like how they, you know, that's, it's like, part of it is like, what's the point of mentioning it if they're not going to do nothing about it anyway? Like, right. you know, that like you're familiar with the patterns and stuff. Right. And it's just, and so, I mean, you but know. do you hope though the fiftieth time that you said it, absolutely that they absolutely. may hear it differently? But I don't want to have to say it fifty times. Exactly. Yeah, that's I where that. I, you know <laughs> that's where I'm at. It's like, man, I already said it forty nine times. Yeah. I'm not about to say it. Okay, the so, so let me say this: as someone who's raised a couple of kids, you know, and as a parent, there's very much sensitivities that we have about that. Okay, but at the same time. Can I just say to parents, can we get the fuck over ourselves so we can hear what we need to hear when we need to grow? Right. And, you know, everybody else that isn't the parent, you know, let's monitor what we mention. Okay. Because if you're saying something all the damn time, they're really not going to listen to you, you know. But can we be open enough as parents and release the need to be perfect because there is no such thing as a perfect parent. We all have done something on some level that's going to screw up our kids just a little bit. It's just true. And you don't want to, ex- I haven't ever wanted to admit that or see that, you know, but it's just part of parenting. You're not supposed to be perfect at it. You're supposed to be learning as you go sometimes. Can you I know? add something to that too? Yeah. I think something that came up when you were speaking about that is that there's two things you need to check the source and check yourself. Mm-hmm. If I know that as a parent or, you know, if, if it's my sister or my mom or someone that I trust and that loves me and that I know and respect, then I'm my perception and the way that I'm hearing it should be different. And I think so often it's Amen not, you don't that. remember like who that person is coming at. Like you talk about your family stuff. They trust you. They know you, they can understand that you're coming from a good place. You're not saying you suck as a parent. You yeah. just could do this a little bit differently or maybe this could enhance what you're already doing. Right. I think there's a duality to that in the sense that if if a person's not already or they haven't, like, they're not working on the skills to be self-accountable, to be self-reflective, mm-hmm. it's really hard to have those conversations where they even trust. Because my sisters trust me. That's, right. that's like, you know, uh, my family in general trust me. But... For one, I'm not a parent, and for two, you know, I think I think um, when you don't have or haven't worked on the skills to be self-reflective, anything you say about or critiquing or whatever, mm-hmm. like hey, maybe you should try this, is seen as like criticism mm-hmm. and not um, and not something that that could be looked at as self-reflective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the dynamic between. Um, even even having conversations with friends, um, and and even going back to you know Marie, like if she's not in the sense to be, if someone if her friends would have talked to her and say you probably shouldn't be hitting your kids, and and maybe that did come up, mm-hmm. but if she's not in the space to be self reflective, oh I've always done this, this mm-hmm. is always what I've done, it doesn't matter what right. it said, you know what I mean? Right. Because it's not she's not in that space to be even growing. As a person, as a mm-hmm. as a as an individual, because she doesn't have those skills, and so it's like hard, because you want people to be better. Right. Inherently, you want people to be better, right. but it's like when people don't have, when they're not, they're not exposed to those things, or they're so stuck on, 
Um, and I, I, I was just having, you know, a conversation with my dad about like, you work so much, you know, like this is, I'm like, you work so much. You're like, you know, almost 60 years old. Like, why don't you try something new? Oh, it's my time has passed. My time, you know, just like this stuff like that. When they're not in the space to even like get there, mm-hmm. to even consider something else as a possibility, they're just not, it's just not, it feels like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. but here's the, here's the caveat. When, at what point do we intervene on a higher level? when we see children who are at risk. True. Right. Like beyond not, that person. Right. When it's right. not just, you know, you don't wear stripes for checks type of thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, right. it's a deep situation where right. you feel like that child is at risk for abuse, is being abused, or is emotionally at risk because they're witnessing abuse. Right. Like at what point do you neighbor, friend, auntie, cousin, nay, nay, may, may, and them, at what point do you intervene on a higher level mm-hmm. to say, this is not okay. These kids are not okay. Yeah. And something's got to change. Mm-hmm. I think with that, one of the biggest issues is that as humans, we don't want to be alone. And we will put that above a lot of things. We'll put that above a kid we see being abused. We'll put that above some crazy situation that we see happening. Wow. Because you overstepping that person and maybe going to report them or do something may cost you that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know what that means. We don't want to be lonely. And yeah. we mm-hmm. we put we prefer that over helping folks a lot. Yeah. And I think it also depends on what relationship you are to people. Like if you know my brother, you know, and his child, if I saw something or thought something, you know, it would probably be different from my sister and her child, Mm -hmm. you know, because we defer to the mothers a lot. Right. But it also would be different if it was one of my children's children, particularly my daughter's child. Mm -hmm. Like if, if I had a a deep concern about abuse of my daughter's child, I would go get that baby. Yeah. It would be different if it was my son's child, because now it's just different when it, it just, I don't know. That's not the mother isn't your daughter. It's just different. It really is. And you feel like sometimes I know there were ways that my mother felt like she could speak into my parenting in ways that she never did to my sister in law Mm -hmm. or to my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just because she thought he did everything right. You know, and and always said, and always had something to say about how I parented. Um. So. So I just know the relationship dynamics are different too. But I also say that if you are a sister or brother or something like that, and you see kids who are in, in, in emotional, physical, spiritual danger of abuse, you know, that, again, go get an ally. The testimony of two is true, right? So go get two and three people from the family mm-hmm. so that you're not the one person because then, you the, then you're the problem. Right. But if you can get two or three other people that have some agreement on what's going on because listen, if a child is being physically or sexually abused, there is a morality from our point of view of something we need to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that what you need to do is always calling social services, right? Because they are not the heroes in the story. But I'm saying you need to do something. And, you know, I've had situations in my family where I've had to intervene with some kids and actually took them into my home. So, 
there are things you can do that you don't have to involve the system, but keeps the kids safe. Mm -hmm. There are other times when you have to involve the system when you can't keep the kids safe, right. that if you go get the kids because that parent is not willing to relinquish the care of the kids to you, you can't just go get them. You're going to be kidnapped or whatever, like that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, where you have that balance. But again, you still need other witnesses in the family that have seen the abuse that can say, yes, I've seen this. And if you call social services, don't call them too quick unless you know what you're about to do. Okay, you call them, but real quick, make a decision that if those children are removed, who in the family is willing and able to take care of them? Like have that already set up. You know, we're concerned about my sister, my brother and their kids are being abused. And my aunt Tina is willing to take them in. She has the space. She has the room. You're saying, because when you don't, Social services like to ride in on a white horse, saving our black kids from our black families, you know. And so just a little bit of a pre-thought. Don't wait around. That's not what I mean. But I'm just saying think it through a little bit to know what is the next step so that the kids don't have to go into the system. Yeah. You know, because I think sometimes we think, you know, well, I don't want to see them go in foster care. Well, they won't automatically just put kids in foster care if there is family members that are identified who identify themselves and say, I'm able to take care of the kids. You know, that's what they're supposed to be doing, the, the least kind of restrictive type of a situation. It's good advice because I think a lot of us don't have that much experience dealing with social services. Mm-hmm. And so you just get afraid of yeah. thinking, oh, I don't want the kids in the system. And you're right, you don't. You know, uh, but there are alternatives to that. And if somebody does do it, this is a whole another conversation that's really deep to have. But if somebody does do it, then the family as a whole have to actually support the person who is taking them to financially, emotionally, spiritually, give them respite, all that kind of thing, you know, in order to make it on another level. So so she shared, though, that when she used to do the girl's hair a lot. And she shared that um, one time Erica came over and she was starting to wear turtlenecks and she noticed. And she noticed some scarring on Erica. And she said that she actually confronted Marie. And Marie's response was to stop bringing the girls over and to sever the relationship. Well, she also shared that she had called social services and that she was pretty sure other people had called social services because other people in the community had noticed some scarring on the girls over the years, and they had called, and her response was they didn't do anything about it. Now, when she told me this was early on, before I learned about the other kind of attempts of social services that didn't amount to anything, so... And I've heard this this story, I've heard this many other stories that um, other even professionals had called social services. Pediatricians had called social services. And What's that about? <laughs> what is it about? I don't see how it's, how it's possible. It shouldn't be. Because that kind of shit that, that answers part of the question of could the black community save? It sounds like some people were trying to do something. Yes. Sometimes it feels like the story is overpowered by people who didn't do anything. Yes. But the fact that there was at least a couple of folks who were trying to do something that should have had some type of response is insane. 
then what do you do when the services and the systems that are supposed to be in place to to protect children when you have the courage to tell, to call, to make that call on someone that you love and care about on behalf of someone that you love and care about, and then they don't. I don't get it because they love taking us about the house, so I just don't. That's a good question. I don't get it either. I don't get it either, but we've seen it time and time again in Erica's story that social services was involved, that people didn't know, were aware, and nothing happened because they couldn't get the accused mother that was accused of abuse to call them back. I'm not calling you back if I know you're calling me because you're accusing me of beating my children. I'm not returning that phone call. Right. That's a no-brainer. So she did share that, and she did share that there were people who were concerned early on when the kids were young and early on with Erica. Um, And so it, it, it begs to ask the question, you know, one of the things she said was that the mother would claim that it was discipline. You know, what's, where do we cross the line between physical discipline and physical abuse? When and where is that line crossed? Are we, like, as black people, like, is it with the generational historical trauma, do we believe it's okay inherently? Like, that this is just what you're supposed to do? Like, you get your butt whooped right. and beat? If you don't listen to rules and stuff, like, is that, I don't know. I mean, I think we believe it's necessary. I think we believe that it's necessary to protect our greater good. I'd rather beat you at home than have somebody take you out in the streets. Mm-hmm. That kind of mentality, you know? And so is it about the generational trauma? I think so. Yeah. And the historical trauma. Of yeah. It. Uh-huh. Like, is there a part where there's like, this is what's been done mm-hmm. historically. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, think to about keep it. us in line. Grown right. people was beaten. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, Grown people was beaten yeah. if they did something that they weren't quote unquote supposed to do. Yeah. Right. You're onto something with that though. That's what I always think of when I think of discipline. And it makes me think in the future whenever I have kids, like just knowing where it all began, I don't want to whoop. Mm-hmm. Or I know where it came from. I've right. been whooped. I've seen people be whooped. It's in the family. Mm-hmm. And it could easily be continued. And when that's you look not at it to like say that, I don't believe. <laughs> there are instances where I believe that it's necessary. I'm but why, lie. though? Why? Because I don't It's just like. Why do we believe it's necessary? That, right. That's, that's, that's saying exactly what you just it. said. That's exactly right. it. It's like, why do I feel like. Physical discipline is necessary. It's a good physical harm, right? Right. That's and you talked about that too, though. And I don't mean a but like I don't mean like with a belt with like a a switch or you know like I'm not. But why any pain though? Why do we think that any pain should be involved to get people to listen to us? Yeah, because it's definitely negative reinforcement, and it's not over. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, there yeah. are times over the last week that I'm like, man, I really wish I believed it enough, believed in it enough to whip one of my nieces or nephews. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that's not to say, you know, all jokes aside, I, it's definitely crossed my mind. Did I do it? No, because I, it's like, that's not how I want to be. Right. I'm yeah. a talker. I want to be able to communicate with them. I don't care if they're right. two years old. I mean, that's I mean? quick and easy. 
Yeah, and, and really, a lot of times it's because you ain't got on my damn nerves now. <laughs> right. So I'm going to beat your ass. Exactly. You didn't got on my damn nerves, I'm going to beat your ass. Mm-hmm. But and that's messed up. That's the quick way to do it because when you break it down, I had talked to this doctor one time, and she's uh, against physical discipline. And I wasn't convinced at that point in time that, like, no physical discipline at all. And over the years, I've really processed it and thought about it. And it gets down to, you did something that I told you not to do, so now I'm going to cause you physical pain. (laughs) Like, when you break it down, I'm trying to teach you, so I'm going to hurt you so you can learn. Right. That's some bullshit. Isn't it? it? Is. Yeah, it, it is. is. It is. Absolutely. When you break it down like that, that yeah. is a straight bullshit. It is absolutely. Instead of teaching. It takes time to exactly. teach. It takes yeah. time That's to train. Too. Yeah. We don't but, want to be invested enough to, to do what it takes right. to really have those conversations and sit down and yeah. maybe well, have to go over it 50 times as opposed to just one couple licks. Right. And And so on the deeper end of that, right, like what are children exposed to with their parents or mm-hmm. with their mom and their mom's significant other who's not their dad, but like, you know what I mean? Like, what are they exposed to? What do they see as um, what makes sense and what do they bring with them? Well, can we just you know? pause there for a second and just say, if you're living with someone who is not the father of your child, under no circumstances should that person ever put their hands on your child. Like, if you believe in physical discipline, can we just say that Tyrone, number 55, should not be spanking your child? Right. Ever. And I don't even think Tyrone, number 56, should even be disciplining your child. Mm -mm. Like, that's your business. That's your business now Mm -mm. um, to discipline your own child, particularly with somebody um, who's going to be gone in six months. Like, it's not their job to raise your child. No. At all. And so, but where do we cross the line, even if you feel like physical discipline is appropriate for you? And, you know, and I, you know, I didn't get a lot of spankings because I was a pretty good kid. But I've had to go out to the willow tree and get my own switch. That's just so... Go What? Not <laughs> only are you going to beat my ass, I have to go choose the instrument... That's- that you're going to use to be mad. That's, that's sick. <laughs> my, There's something cruel about that. There is, yeah. there is, but, but like, that has to stem from, and I, I've heard the argument, like, you know, people have physical discipline in Africa and blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. like, at the end of the day, that has to be from slavery. That has to be, day, especially yeah. going to like, um, fetch your own switch. My exactly. grandma told my cousin, Boy, go fetch a switch. And he came yeah. back with this thing, and then he had to go get another one because it's not the one she wanted. Wow. Right. Because you my, know why? It didn't have enough airtime in there. Because <laughs> that's right. That's right, children. You think the thin one is the one that you want. And I'm going to tell you from experience, you don't want the thin switch. No. You want the thicker one. <laughs> because the thin one is going to leave you wept up and down. It's worse. You think for some reason the thin one is your friend. It's not your friend. Get the tree trunk. I'm just hating <laughs> whooping more trunk. and more as we talk about Get it. Get the tree trunk. No, but like actually I I really feel like it it has to come from there somehow. Definitely. And and to um 
and my thing is so so like i said it's crossed my mind Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day because i'm a communicator i'll sit with a a two-year-old for as long as it takes so when does it cross your mind when does the use of physical discipline cross your mind when you're stop, it has to be really dramatic. Like when you're stomping and like carrying on, throwing stuff, shutting doors, no, slamming doors. How are doors. you feeling when you consider to use physical discipline? For me, it's about the disrespect, and I. This is with grown folks too. No, I'm asking like, you, how do you feel when you think, okay, I'm about to use physical discipline on my niece and nephew? How are you feeling? In the moment? How are you feeling in the moment? There's like, there's rage. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's rage. You mad, but, you yeah. frustrated, you feeling disrespected. Right. So is it about, this is the best way. Right, or is it to, about how you're feeling at the time? Exactly. Is this the best way to discipline my child mm-hmm. or my love child? Mm-hmm. Or is it I'm mad frustrated, angry, disrespected, and now you didn't embarrass me because you acting up in church? In the yeah. name of Jesus, I'm going to whip your ass. <laughs> you know? Right. So what is it then? Well, what people, is it about? When it comes to True. church, people use the, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child mm-hmm. all, the, all the time, which I feel like is misinterpreted. It is misinterpreted. And, but that's the line people love to use when right. it comes to, like, to, to church. Is well, that- if you look at a shepherd, because the rod is about the shepherd and what he used with his sheep. You don't see a whole lot of shepherds beating the hell out of the sheep with the rod. Like at all. They like gently yeah. use it to prod them, to direct them, to get them in the right direction. They don't be beating the hell out of them. Right. Right. You know, so you know, where so where again, where does it cross the line between from physical discipline to abuse? And I you know, my mother was physically disciplined by my grandmother. And at that time in the 40s and 50s, it was considered discipline. But my grandmother was abusive. My mother used to always say, oh, mama would have been put to jail because she would beat them. She didn't spank them. She would beat them with extension cords. And she would, this is not funny. It's just, you know how you just like burst out and laugh because you don't want to cry. She would... Mm -hmm. She would make them get on their knees, and she would put their head between her knees so they mm-hmm. couldn't get away and whoop them. That was one way. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, but where, where is the line crossed? When so, there's a scar, blood, bruise? When I get to that point of, like, man, I really want to whoop them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I have to do some self-reflection because really it's about what's triggering me. Mm-hmm. Like, what right. is it that I'm feeling so enraged about? Right. Because yeah. um, the fact that I get to the point where I want to fight a little two-year-old like a grown man, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's like, that is me. That has yes. nothing to do with yeah. them. It really has nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with any of your kids that, that, and I'm not a parent, so obviously, but like it, it has nothing to do with them. And it has everything to do with what it is that's triggering me. And when I really, when, whenever I like spend time and I think about it, it's really about, I don't like being disrespected. It don't matter who it's from. Well, somebody is 1.5 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, and it's like, why, why is that? And it's because, and really when it comes down to it, it's because I feel like 
my voice isn't being heard. And it's that mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with like, um, there, there's who they don't know. And they're, deep, they're supposed to yeah. be learning. You know what I mean? Right. They're supposed to be learning. They don't have any idea why you're even spanking them. So what's right. the point is what right. my thing is like, why are you even whipping them? They don't even right. know what you're whipping them for. Right. They're going to do it again or, later. I've seen people spank like one year olds and, and younger. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't oh, even understand English. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> they really don't. Right they have now. no idea right. what you're talking about. Right. And you're supposed to be trying to discipline them with a whipping for what? So yeah. that's that's on me that I get there. It has right. nothing to do with these kids. But y'all still didn't answer my question. What? When it has become abuse? I mean, after this conversation, the other conversations, the second you inflict any type of pain, yeah. it's abuse. It, yeah. Wow. I think that's just the truth, and that's regardless of whether you still choose to do it or not. But I think any pain inflicted on another person is abuse. I think it's because you can't separate it from the fact that it's selfish, you know? Because it's like, mm-hmm. you didn't listen to right. me. Exactly. I'm mad. I'm upset. Right. Because right. You I'm disrespecting me. Right, you disrespected me, right. so I'm going to whip you right. for something you, don't, you probably don't. I mean, like... It's true. It's just you what is what is it going to do? And yeah, you're supposed you're trying to like put fear in them. You're trying to like get them in line. But communication starts early. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if exactly. you're not communicating early and working on ways to communicate early, right. It's going to get to the point where you want to whoop them. Yeah, that's a <laughs> good know? point, though. Because then we don't have to look at ourselves and where we messed up. Maybe we could explain something better. Maybe we was in the wrong, and that's why they didn't listen. Exactly. Or they didn't understand. Exactly. I, yeah, I agree. I think it's abuse as soon as mm-hmm. you... second wow. you lift it up. <laughs> and land it. Yeah, the second it's landed. Yes. <laughs> right. We're going to leave that right there. That's deep. So that's something to really mull over. You know, and I hope some parents... And, it, and this is too twofold as well. And I talked about this in the episode with Tony McAllister. I said, you know, particularly in these COVID times, single mothers are very, very stressed out economically, emotionally, spiritually. They sick of their kids. Their kids are sick of them. They've been up locked up in the house with them, you know, and it's overwhelming. And a good scenario when you have a good job is overwhelming to be a single mother you know when you have food in the refrigerator in the cabinets it's still stressful to be a single mother so now in these uncertain times it's even more so so part of us as the black community is if you know a single mother you go check on her see how she's doing give her some relief give her some respite you know if you're not the type of person who want to deal with children that's fine Team up with another friend. Have her go watch the kids and you take the mother out. You take her grocery shopping. You drop off groceries. You do something because we know that this is a serious time of stress for everybody and particularly with our single moms that's out there. And I'll talk about this another time, but y'all get your mouths off black mothers. Get your mouths off black single mothers because they doing it. They, They holding it together. Some better than others, but they're there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can I go back to the whooping, though? Yes. <laughs> Something that you mentioned once when we were talking about the same type of conversation is the tie between whooping your kids and toxic relationships in the future. Mm-hmm. And that keeps coming to my mind as I'm thinking wow. about this conversation because I bet everybody who's got whooped has had at least one toxic relationship, even if yeah. it's through friendships or through romantic relationship. 
And I think it's just interesting looking at that tie and you're setting up for failure in terms of the tie of safe people and pain. Wow. Because parents will tell you, I'm doing this because I love you. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this recently. I was having a conversation with my brother. And I was talking about my thoughts and feelings and relationship with money. When I was a kid, I loved money. Not to spend it. I loved having it. I would wash my money, dry it. <laughs> Wait, I'm not done. I would iron it. I like clean, crisp money. Would it, like, how crisp would it get? It could like real crisp. Dollar? It would get really clean, and then you iron it out. You it know would you can do that without, like, I would it. use starch. It's, it's made of cloth or, like, a yeah. cottony. I think I would, it's cotton or something. Yeah, I, I, would, I would use starch, and it would be beautiful. And Make my mother spanked me one time over some money. I had asked somebody for some money, or I found some money, and I was excited about it. And she spanked my butt good. Now, some y'all too young to understand, but somebody out there understands when I tell you she spanked me with an Avon brush. Some of y'all understand what I'm talking about. Them like 75, 1975, 1976 Avon brushes was strong. See, all y'all know are these little brushes when you run them through some naps. They break in half. That wasn't no Avon brush. Okay? Broke your behind in half. It broke your booty. She spanked me and she spanked me good. I still have A-V-O-N on my ass. And she spanked me because later she talked to me about it. She spanked me because she didn't want me to be crazy about money. Because she felt if I was crazy about money, that I would be vulnerable in the streets for men enticing me with money. What about the man in house that's the only one you know what i'm saying right right that's a whole nother conversation of why we think it's worse for somebody outside of our house to rape and abuse our kids than we think about somebody in our house or in our family that's a whole nother Mm -hmm. conversation but and i just was asking him like does this at all impact the way that i feel about money fear about money strain about money at all. Mm, you know, I'm not going to put point. everything into that butt whooping because there was just other things too, you know, but uh, I remember that one very vividly. Sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I talked to a number of people who um, didn't really want to talk about the scenario, which it still kind of surprises me that there is some level of um, holdback, level of protection, level of, I don't know. It's just people wanting to protect Marie, wanting to protect her and look out for her. So I talked to another friend, and her initial question for me, almost she drew a line in the sand that if I'm going to talk to you, you need to assure me this story is about Erica, right? Because I'm okay talking about Erica, but I don't want to talk about Marie because what is, what's the good is it going to do to say Marie did this, Marie did that, Marie did this, Marie did that. There's nothing we can do to save Erica. So what is it helpful to do to talk about Marie? So one of the things that she said was, 
her rationale behind this was that Marie had suffered enough. She suffered enough, and she didn't want to bring her any more pain through participating in this story. Any thoughts on that? I think, um, oh, my bad. Oh, I think it's, a t- <laughs> I think it's, it's consistent with the fact that people want to, um, kind of bury the victim mm-hmm. of it, the true victim, mm-hmm. um, and like protect the abuser You're is right. what it comes down to. I mean, that's, that's happened in my case. It's happened in your case, mm-hmm. um, because uh, that person forms like these relationships that are false, but they they have the superficial relationship with people, where to the point where they just can't believe that 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 person is even capable of anything mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. That it has to be something else. It's yeah, like it has right. to be some other explanation. Like it can't just be the fact that um, this person sexually abused someone. That they can't that the and and they wanted to and that they chose to actively do that. They can't believe that um, in Marie's case that this godly woman was beating her kids, mm-hmm. one to death. You mm-hmm. know, like that. It's they just can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be something else, right? And um, and they say that the mind cannot hold two diabolically opposed ideas. Mm-hmm. So you can't believe that Erica was brutally killed by Marie and that Marie is this wonderful Christian woman. So you have to choose one mm-hmm. at some point. Right. Right. And they chose to believe the false face. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think sometimes we hold on to who we want that person to be. So mm-hmm. we'll lie to ourselves and do whatever it takes to protect what we want them to be. Right. And then also we have to grapple with the fact that if I do admit this, I was friends with a murderer. I saw these different things mm-hmm. that it comes back on you mm-hmm. and how you're perceived now. Right. That's a good point because then it becomes self-preservation, which we're always about. The ego is always trying to protect itself. Yeah. Then it's like, yeah, that's a really good point. To believe that a friend of mine did this to children that I knew and loved and saw right. on a regular basis says something about me too, Mm -hmm. that I missed it, that I didn't see it. And I think it's important though, people who are wearing false face are really good at deceiving. They really, really are. And so taking the time to cry that you didn't know something is, 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 you know, not helpful. You know, you see what you see, you know, and then where do you go? Where do you go from there? And, um, it was a tough conversation and it was tough for me to hear. It was tough for her to have because I could tell she was really struggling and where she was, you know, when she first heard it and where she is now with two different places, you know, and I, I can, I can appreciate that. The fact that when you know, and you love somebody, you know, it is hard for you to believe something horrible about them, you know, um, What did you notice between where she was and then versus now? Well, I think, you know, part of it was that there was an initial sense of denial about what was going on during the time when Erica was younger. 
And she saw scars and she saw scars on Tierra and she saw scars on the other girl. And there was always some explanation. And one of the things she said was that she noticed scars on Tierra and they would be there so frequently that she began to think that maybe she had some kind of skin condition, you know, because why are these scars constantly appearing on her? And, but she said, but they always look the same. Whatever was causing them created them the same pattern, the same look, the same something. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until years later that she even noticed that how Erica dressed. That till she looked back on pictures and things of that. And she even mentioned that she had had conversations because I had been trying to get a hold of her. So she knew I was telling this story. And I guess there was some conversation around folks who knew. Marie knew the girls, knew the kids, and she said that she heard from several people that Erica wore long sleeves and long pants, and that there was something that back then that was odd about that, you know, that that kind of stuck out about her always wearing turtlenecks, no matter what the season. And one of the things I asked her was, like, did you notice anything differently about how the girls dressed? Did you notice anything differently about... Erica's hair. One of the things that she noted that a number of friends that I spoke to also said was there was a period of time, particularly after Tierra's death, that Marie began to really isolate herself. And when you listen to the previous episode with Katina, I used a poem, a couple pieces of poem that Marie had written. And one of the things she said in the poem was that she had purposely separated herself from being around people because of some tragedies that had happened. So, I mean, to me, that gives a little window and insight that even after Tierra's death, um, it was later that year that social services was called and the family disappeared in 2004, that it became more and more difficult for her to maybe hold the two identities together. And the easiest thing seemed to be to separate herself, you know, stop going to church, stop hanging around friends who could see. And I imagine that there's some level of darkness that she went into, even in responding to Erica. Um, She didn't exactly report, but just the report that was made about her being abused. And so, um, You know, so there was an overall feeling like Marie had been through enough and that um, let's not do harm and and through telling of the story. And that's not my intention to do harm. Um, There's nothing to gain from that, to do harm to Marie from telling this story. But what I was trying to explain to her, that my hope was to do better about the next Erica But first, to first honor the journey that Erica took. Erica lived a very, very, very difficult, painful, traumatic life when she moved up here with Marie. And that was erased by a lot of the court proceedings and the she gone and left stories and things of that nature. And um, one of the things I asked one of Marie's friends who knew her well was, I said, one of the things that was said in court proceedings 
was that Marie said she chose to dispose of Erica's body in the way that she did because she was afraid that if she had called the authorities, called the police, and they came and saw Erica's body that she claimed she just spontaneously came home and Erica was just dead, that if the police saw her body, they would have seen the scars and on her body and would have assumed that Marie had beaten her and would have taken her other kids away. And Marie went on to claim that it was her mother that had abused Erica and that left the scars on her. So I asked a friend of Marie's who knew her and knew the family well, do you believe this is true? And she just point blank said, no, I don't. She said, when Erica moved up here, she moved up here because Marie's mother had died. And she said, Erica was a happy child. She did not have scars on her face and all over her arms and all over her body. She said that Marie's mother took excellent care of Erica. She was a well-loved and cared-for child. And I found that really telling. Yeah. And an important part of the story to tell that, no, that's not true. That is not true. She, you know, plus from the time that Erica came in approximately 2001 to Erica's death in 2007, when she died, the coroner said that she had scars that were at various stages of healing. Ain't no scar healing for six years. Six years later. Right. You know, so I thought that was that was very telling. And then I asked a friend of hers that I spoke with. I said, um, you know, basically, do you think Marie killed Erica? You know, Marie said that she came home and she found her dad. Do you think she killed her? And she said yes. He, um, I do. knew that she had done something wrong. And she talked about I said, but doesn't she, she have about, to you know, admit that she killed her? How can she seek forgiveness? How can, you know, she heal if she doesn't take responsibility for Erica's death? I don't think you, yeah, I don't think you can heal without being accountable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, th- I don't think that's healing. Right. Because how can you? How can you identify, how can you, how can, how would you be able to heal a wound you don't identify? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's part of it, that that's part of the healing process. And, you know, um, I don't know if I'll get deep into some of the court papers in this season at all, but one of the things was there was a lot of demonizing of Erica, saying she was disobedient, she was hard-headed, she was hard to take, she was running away, getting out of the house all the time. She was fast. She was having boys over. She refused to go to school, and this is why she was being homeschooled. Like all these negative things that basically was saying she somehow was responsible for her own spontaneous death. And I just have to say that's bullshit. And I understand that defense attorneys have to do their job. 
But if part of your job is demonizing a 15-year-old girl who was murdered, then you know what? I don't know how you live with that. I don't. I understand you have to defend your client, all that, but I just don't know how does someone who has been murdered, her death was was ruled a homicide. How does someone then get blamed for their own murder as a 15-year-old child? And it's kind of like that kind of mindset is what we're seeing today. Every black person that has been unarmed, that has been shot and killed, there's always the need to demonize them, Mm -hmm. you know? Immediately. Immediately. But Kyle Rittenhouse was seen painting over or cleaning up graffiti hours before he the white the white boy uh, in Kenosha. Uh, that's what they said. They that they came out with that immediately after. I didn't even hear that. Yeah. Well, they had they had this whole so, article about it. Yeah, they always have good stuff to say about white people who uh-huh. kill people like the mass murderer. Oh, like the mass murderer who shot up the kids up in Connecticut, I think it was. <laughs> well, he was a gifted violinist and he felt ignored by his mother. He felt like I don't give a fuck what you felt. <laughs> what no reason to go up in that At school all. and kill little six and seven year old kids. But there was he had mental health needs. Pass me a tissue so I can cry Sexy. for the motherfucker who went up in the school <laughs> and shot like five and six year old kids. Okay. But conversely, someone who just was a victim shot, shot in their back, shot while they were running, shot when they didn't have no gun, spontaneously hung themselves with a garbage bag. Right. Have you ever known a garbage bag to be that strong that could hold up somebody right. that was like six foot? I've never True. seen that. Or even that a garbage plastic bag would be in a jail cell so that Sandra Blank could hang herself. Y'all quit with right. this. Quit with this. Right. There's always some reason. She did this. He did that. He was a rapist. He was a this. He was a that. You know, he jaywalked. There's like, there's always some exactly. excuse. Anything. He had weed in the system. Right. right. Like that means anything. At all. Must right. be a criminal if you smoke weed. Right. Like, exactly. Right. Look. So it's just it's kind of that same mentality, like the need to blame the victim for their victimization. Because and, they have to deserve it is what right. is what is the mentality of right. this. Like what did they do to deserve it? You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's and, and going back to the whoopings, that's what the mentality is. They deserve to get whooped because they didn't obey my rules. They didn't obey me. So you're gonna you're gonna whoop the hell out of a two-year-old right? because they didn't obey your rules? Well, I will tell you exactly. a quick little story. I love Andy Griffith's show. Andy Griffith, and he was telling a story back when Opie, uh, Ron Howard, was a little kid on the set, and he was acting up and wasn't doing right, and his parents spanked him. Yes, white parents do spank their children. Mm-hmm. I was a social worker out in the country, and them parents were spanking their kids, beating them with two by fours. I I'm mean, telling you. If we talk about slavery, why wouldn't they? Right, well. right. So I'm telling you, this is what happened. And so he said that Opie, Ron Howard, was acting up on set, and his father spanked him. And he came and sat by Andy Griffith after he got spanked. Andy Griffith said he leaned over to him and said, You deserved it. <laughs> you deserved it. <laughs> oh my what? god! I thought you were gonna say like you good. No, I think Ron Howard actually told the story. He said he told him, "No, you deserved it." Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's this need to justify it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, but 
everybody that talks about Erica that that was a friend, someone who loved her, talks about the fact that she was sweet, she was kind, she was intelligent, she was funny, she loved life, she loved to read, you know, she was an angel. She had a soft voice. You could hardly hear and that sometimes you would talk and she wouldn't even say anything. You know, as years progressed, she lost her, her voice. This in no way, shape, or form sounds like a girl who deserved to die in the horrendously cruel way that she did. Yeah. So, you know, so people saw stuff. She saw stuff and then things were were clearer as she looked back. As she looked back, she saw things that like, oh yes, I did see things that stood out. And I did notice that one time I saw them together as a family and Erica was the only one wearing a scarf around her neck. You know, like like not many 14-year-olds use a scarf around their neck as a fashion statement. You know what I'm saying? So, like, all of these signs, all these things, no 12-year-old wants to wear a turtleneck in June and long sleeves in June. It's... It's just not. It's just not. And so being aware, so I come back. I come back from these conversations with her friends that were heartbreaking, that were painful to have for me to hear, for them to say. And I say, so could the black community have saved Erica? And how did we, us as a community of people, how did we miss the chances to save Erica? Could we have saved her? Yeah, absolutely. We had countless opportunities to do so. And I don't think we missed the chance. We just chose not to. We put Marie, and I don't know why I say we, because I wasn't a part of that. And I'm just saying, we as a community, the big, the the whole, as a black community, we. Um, Yeah. Marie's life was put over it. Um, People's comfort was put over Erica's life. Mm. Wow. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I think, too, people were unwilling to look foolish for the sake of her life. Mm-hmm. And that's what it comes down to when, we're, when, we're, when we see things like this and we mm-hmm. are committed to defending any life, and especially black girls, we have to be okay with looking foolish and with being wrong sometimes too. Right. If it comes down to somebody's life, I think it's okay to, to sometimes be wrong if that's the case. Yeah. But often when we, we see stuff and we have that intuition within us, we know something. Would that be fully on point? And, you know, I have to say, in all fairness, I don't think anybody could have anticipated what happened. I don't think anybody could have anticipated that Erica would be murdered. But here's the thing. When you begin to use progressive abuse, anything can happen. Right. Accidentally, it can happen. You could... Punch somebody and they fall over, hit their head, right, and and die from a blood clot or concussion. But should they have had to anticipate her dying to have done something? No, because 
the abuse itself. Yeah. She deserved to be rescued. Right. She deserved. That's what I'm saying. Erica yeah. Hill deserved to have been rescued by people who knew and loved her. She deserved it. Black girls that you know right now deserve to be rescued by you, by the community, by the church, by the school, by the counselors, by the social workers. Black girls deserve to be defended. Yes. I think this is a prime example, too, of the bystander theory. Mm. Somebody else uh-huh. is going to handle it. Someone right. else is going to take care of it. The yeah. school is going to take care of it. The social yeah. worker is going to take care of it. Right. You know, like all this stuff. And then when she and the family disappeared from Madison, it was, that was that, you know? Like all these people, and and it's not about blame um, at all, but it is about accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone who encountered Erica, especially the school personnel, knew something wasn't going on. I can't. I refuse to believe that. You didn't get a feeling, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just hard for me to believe that I've worked in the schools mm-hmm. and um, I worked really closely with students and you can tell you can. There's there's but a it's way- beyond that, though, Cassie, because, yeah, you could get a feeling, but they also had visual cues. Yeah. Her braids are falling out. Right. Her right. clothes are rising up her leg. Right. She's wearing flooded pants. She's wearing the same clothes over and over again. She's wearing turtlenecks all the time. She's wearing long sleeves all the time, long pants all the time. So even if we even just said you have a feeling, because we've had feelings, we've mm-hmm. had intuition, we've had things, but there were visual cues mm-hmm. and even folks who saw Erica go from that bright, bubbly, happy, well taken care of, well loved child to someone who only spoke above a whisper if she spoke at all. So there was evidence after evidence after evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence besides having a feeling that something was wrong. Right. And like, you know, as far as the black community goes, what is it, what do we need to do to, selfish isn't really the word I'm looking for, but there is a sense of, like you said, comfort. There's there's a sense of um, how it's going to make me feel, or I got to go out of my way to do some, or, you well, know. what if I'm wrong? Well, yeah. and I'm going to lose my friend. Right. Yeah. So, and, and like you mentioned earlier, what is it, when is it, what does it take to speak up? Mm-hmm. And why, why not? Like, why, why does it, why does it take so much to speak up? What's worse than a child being beaten? What's worse than a child feeling unloved right. and hated? What's worse than that? What's worse than a 15-year-old being murdered, um, being starved, being beaten? What's worse than that? And 
you you said a couple things that made me think. One was the bystander thing, thinking somebody else is going to do something. Somebody else is going to take care of it. You know, the school thought maybe the church was going to do something. The church folks maybe thought the school was going to do something. Maybe everybody thought social services, now that they're involved, they're going to do something the first time, the second time, the third time. And it doesn't happen. And so being lost in the balance is this child. And um, and not the only child now. 65,000 right. other girls. Mm-hmm. Right. Who are disreported? Who not even you know? Not even she, know the real numbers. Right. right. I mean, she wasn't even reported, so she's not right. even. She wouldn't even technically be a part of that. She six, wouldn't even be. But you talked about accountability. But the flip side of that is accountability. As we look at this story, right? Who should have been accountable? Who was accountable? But the flip side of that is looking at it so that we can learn from it. Then becomes the opportunity. Right now we have the opportunity for any kids that we see in our pathway to do something. And I think it's important too to have productive accountability, but then not not allowing it to cause you to be defensive. Mm-hmm. Well, what what was I supposed to do? What right. could I do? You know what I mean? Right. What can you do now? Is right. it like what can you do going forward? Right. And there were some of the people we talked about during the course or talked to during the course of the season focused a lot on that self accountability. Mm-hmm. I think some people deflected and that's not, not too many people talk about self accountability now. Not yeah, I was people. being generous. <laughs> you being very, very generous. And, and, and it's not to, it's not to blame. I think there's even with the movement going on now, if you're not accountable for what you're doing, not doing like what can be done? You know what I mean? What can be done to fix anything? America's not accountable. You know what I mean? Like this country isn't accountable. What can you, what, how can you heal something that's not accountable? Right. You can't, you can't, there's no, because what are you working on at that right. point? Right. What do you even know what to work on it? Like, exactly. I want to go back to something you said or Alexander said, I can't remember, but you're talking about like, um, you were talking about accountability and then you're also talking about something that made me think about, um, how do as a black community could the black community have saved her and where do we need to be at as the black community to be able to save other Erica's and other children and it reminds me of the mural we just recently did and I said that when black women heal black girls thrive and that's kind of the point of it like the when we're healed when we're assured when we're comfortable in our own skin about the decisions that we're making the things that we're doing the voice that we have to save children, when we're good, we're in the position to save Erica's. Mm-hmm. When we're well, when we're working on our stuff. Absolutely. When we're using good techniques with our children. But if you're beating the hell out of your children, who are you to talk about somebody else beating the hell out of theirs? Right. You don't have nothing to say. Yeah. But when we heal as black women, We are in a position to defend black girls, period. As my grandmother would say, "Mm, mm, mm," that was a good conversation. And listen, we're not playing. 
We mean this thing. We mean to defend black girlhood by taking on the tough conversations that need to be had in order to do so. And we would love for you to get more connected with our work and our mission by visiting Laleda.org to explore the dynamic work we're doing to defend black girls everywhere they are. And while you're there, we invite you to join our mailing list so you will not miss one single fearless conversation.